Good morning, church. It's wonderful to have you here. So we are super excited. Uh, like the guys have mentioned, it's been a wonderful day so far with the baptism and the worship. So thank you for coming today to participate with us. As you know, we've uh, last week, thanks to Pastor Scott uh, for reminding us of Christ's resurrection power. That was such a great encouraging reminder of that. And so we've been in the context of Philippians and we're back in that today. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn to chapter two, we're gonna be looking at verses 12 and 13 today. For context, we'll read verses 12 through 18, but our focus will be on 12 and 13 this week and then uh, the remainder and, the, and next week. So if you need a Bible, just feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one or let you borrow one. So Philippians chapter two, Verses 12 and 13 is what we'll be studying today. So as we've been uh, looking at Philippians, we've been reminded in the previous weeks before Easter of the example of Christ. And so we spent three weeks looking at his humility, his obedience, and then seeing uh, the exaltation, the super exaltation of Christ. And so today's text, Paul takes Christ's humble example and then begins to move it into practical application. So what difference does his obedience look like in our lives? So if you have your Bibles now and you're able to stand, please stand with us for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord for prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we know today certainly that this is one of those texts that is challenging. It certainly stretches us. It puts this tension in place of our role and your role. And so I pray that we can come to the right understanding of those things, that we can glorify you for your power, for your work from start to finish in our salvation. And yet at the same time, Heavenly Father, we also pray that you will motivate us by your love to be able to serve you and obey you joyfully, freely, and willingly. Please enable us to do this through your grace and spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So three seconds. Uh, a lot can happen in the, the course of just three simple seconds. It takes at least that long for bacteria to attach itself to your food when it falls on the floor. So moms, you were right. The three second rule is fine. We add to the nation's debt about 580,000 every three seconds. The world's fastest cars can go from zero to 60 in around three seconds. And all of those are true, but on this time that we're talking about, on this particular day, uh, certainly a lot more happened in three seconds. 
President Ronald Reagan and his Secret Service agents were doing what seemed to be just another visit, another speech, one that they'd done hundreds of times or many, many times before. In fact, the agents were so comfortable with it, they didn't even wear bulletproof vests. They thought it was just another routine day. But suddenly, out of nowhere, came two shots, followed by four more. And instinctively, even without thinking about it, Secret Service agent Jerry Parr grabs Ronald Reagan and puts his right hand over his head and thrusts him into the limo. Simultaneously, another agent, a big Irishman, jumps in front to shield Reagan. They jump in the car, go, go, go! Three seconds later, the car's in action and they're out of there. From when the first shot started to when that limo took off, took about three seconds. And it was quick action like that that uh, saved Ronald Reagan's life. Uh, they, made the, they made the decision to go to the hospital instead of the White House. And, and thankfully, that was the, the critical decision right there. So Reagan was hit by a bullet, and he almost died that day. But thanks to the, agents, the, the actions of the Secret Service agents, uh, the doctors, and by the grace of God, his life was spared. Now, there's another dimension to that that perhaps gets overlooked and that is discipline and hard work. You see, for a Secret Service agent, their life is filled with one of discipline, practice. You spend years and years practicing for something that you hope will never happen. And so Parr and, and his other comrades didn't even have to think about what to do the moment they heard those gunshots. They instinctively reacted. But that was born out of discipline and effort. And ultimately, it was what led to the saving of Reagan's life. Now, we know that, at least in the context of the Secret Service agents or the military, discipline and hard work are good things. But if we're honest, they can make some of us feel uncomfortable. Do any of you here struggle with the tension between our work and God's grace? Do you wrestle with questions such as, how hard do I have to work as a Christian? Am I in danger of legalism if I obey Jesus? How does a Christian grow and change? Does it come by a bolt or a zap? Do I need to just sit back and wait for God to do it all? It's questions like this that our text helps to answer today. Now, it's no secret that this passage here, like back in chapter 2, verse 7, has no shortage of controversy. We see in this passage one of the strongest tensions between uh, what, what I could say is one of the strongest verses in the New Testament, or at least one of them, uh, about our role, our work, our efforts, and between one of the strongest truths in the New Testament about God's work, God's initiative. And so what does Paul do with all of these? He puts them side by side, our work and God's work. He reminds us that we must work out our salvation, yet at the same time, it's God who's working in our salvation. Now, this side-by-side -side approach can make many of us feel uncomfortable. You may want an answer today. Josh, I'm going to need you to clear this up for me. I want to come away from here with no tension in my life, and I'll just acknowledge that's not possible. Tension is not a bad thing. So this side-by-side -side approach can leave us feeling uncomfortable. The, the emphasis on our works can seem to some like legalism. Our natural tendency is to want to resolve the tension 
And so we attempt to navigate it by either downplaying our role, our works, or God's work. And I believe it's fair to say that simply that, that many of us just don't understand how this tension works. So just a few degrees off and we can miss the mark entirely. We can become misguided and start working for our salvation rather than working out our salvation. On the other hand, though, we can be scared of or, or nervous of words like diligence, effort, duty. We know that legalism is bad, so we want to stay away from that. We, after all, are a gospel-centered church, right? So we want to talk about grace. And so any kind of talk about commandments or requirements can seem legalistic. Now, the temptation, which I will readily acknowledge in this text, is to turn it into a systematic theology lecture on sanctification. And so to avoid that, I want to start with asking the question, why does Paul put verses 12 and 13 into our letter here today to the Philippians? Why does he include that? And the answer is not because Paul is some kind of ivory tower theologian who's completely disconnected from the lives of, of people and Philippi and, and other parts of the world there. No, he, he's writing to them because he knows their struggles. He knows the, the tensions they are wrestling with and, and the difficulties they are facing. And so he writes to encourage him in that manner. You see, in God's infinite wisdom, he knows that there is a woman struggling with body image, receiving her value from the judge of the scale. These verses give proper weight to her life. By God's infinite wisdom, he knows there's a man struggling with pornography, wondering if he changes by either installing more internet filters or by remembering his justification. These verses help him to see where the power to change comes from and what he needs to do. In God's infinite wisdom, he knows that there is someone who often feels guilty, like they are constantly letting God down, or they need to be re-justified again because of their sin. These verses help them to see that that's not the way it works. And in God's infinite wisdom, he knows that there's someone feeling stuck, like they just can't change, they just can't get past those old habits. And God knows that these verses will give them hope that there can be change. So over the, over the past few weeks, as, as I've mentioned, we've been focused on the example of Jesus Christ. So Paul places Jesus Christ here at the center in his letter to the Philippians. And Jesus Christ is not only at the center of Philippians, he's also at the center of our entire Bible. All of the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. So as we think through our, our place of Jesus Christ here today, we, we want to think on two and two areas. Jesus Christ as our representative, and we'll talk about a need for a representative, but also Jesus Christ as our example. Both of those are critical to know and to understand. So we need Jesus Christ to be a representative for us, to live as the perfect human being, to accomplish what none of us could do on our own. Jesus Christ was the holiest man who ever lived. He calls us to be holy because God is holy. Fellowship with God is only possible through holiness. There has to be holiness on the part of God and the part of us. Now, we don't worry about holiness on God's part because God is the most holy being there is. We, though, by nature, are not holy. 
Since we are not naturally holy, we need a mediator, a representative, Jesus Christ, who can represent us by virtue of his perfect obedience through his life and death. So God justifies us, meaning he declares us righteous by his grace, not by our works. So Christ's perfect work on our behalf enables us to have this right standing before the Father. So Jesus, the perfect human being, had to be holy in order to accomplish his work. And so while Jesus is our representative, which we desperately need, he is also our example, both to imitate and to follow. So we've seen in the verses leading up to this that Jesus Christ is the perfect example to follow. If Jesus had not lived by faith and obeyed, he could not have achieved what God had wanted him to. We would be now and eternally lost. And if Jesus Christ had not obeyed in the way that God had wanted him to, then we would really have no basis even today to call and command you to obey. You, you would rightfully say to me, yes, but Jesus didn't put others ahead of himself, but, but Jesus didn't seek humility. And I'd have to say, well, you, well, you were right. So I, I can't tell you to do the same. But since Jesus did that, we can fairly say, well, if Jesus did that, what right do we think we have? Are, are we better than Jesus? So the example of Jesus is critical here. So Jesus obeyed God's law. He obeyed God perfectly through the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own human strength. But his obedience was his own. He was not some kind of puppet that God or the, or the Holy Spirit, the Father or the Holy Spirit, maneuvered and, and spurred about with no action or effort from himself. So we then as believers are commanded to follow the example of the perfect human being and live in holiness and obedience. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. But God's grace and the Spirit do not take away from our efforts and obedience as believers. Jesus obeyed for us in our justification so that we could have a right standing before God, but he does not obey for us in our sanctification so that we don't have to do anything and Jesus just does all the obedience for us. Our obedience is a real obedience, but as we will see, it's an obedience powered by grace. Now, my hope for you today is not that you will get bogged down in a bunch of confusing uh, theological uh, language here. Uh, my prayer is that you will see Jesus Christ is the cure for all that ails us. My prayer is that you will approach obedience with delight, not out of a sense of duty to keep re-justifying yourself, but it's because how we demonstrate love for our Savior. So again, the cure for what ails us, whether it's legalism or its partner that we'll see later, is our glorious Jesus Christ. So our main point is this. Since God is working in us to fulfill his purposes, we must work hard to live as lights to the watching world. Since God is working in us to fulfill his good purposes, we must work hard to live as lights for the watching world. Now, the first word we come to in this text is therefore. Paul says that in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So the therefore then takes us back to what Paul has previously said 
uh, in chapter earlier in chapter 2 there, verses 1 to 11. So, notice how Paul uh, does this. When he, when he looks back to the attitude and the motivation that Jesus has, it's not this begrudging kind of an attitude. It's not this attitude that happens when, when you ask your kids to clean their room. And about the third time you do it, they, they come back with a, I guess so. Whatever I need to do to get you off my back, I guess I'll do your will, O Father. That's not the kind of attitude Jesus had, was it? It was a willful, joyful attitude. He wanted to obey the Father. Obedience for Jesus was a good thing. So all of uh, the points that we are going to be tying out of this are flowing from Christ's obedience. It really sets the stage for how we're to obey and how we're to live. So our first point is this from verse 12. Christ's obedience motivates us to live or to obey freely, joyfully, and willingly. Christ's obedience motivates us to obey freely, joyfully, and willingly. So the way in which Jesus obeys motivates us to obey in that same manner. And again, thinking back to the way that Jesus obeyed, the attitude by which he'd obeyed, uh, we see it's a very willing, joyful attitude. Now, I'm sure some of you can relate to the feeling of not always feeling that way personally. Is there anybody in the room who never struggles with waking up and, oh, I've got to read my Bible today. Uh, I don't really feel like it. Oh, I know I should serve Christ in this way, but I don't feel like it. Is there anybody in the room that never has those struggles? Every time you wake up, you're always feeling like obeying Jesus, no matter when it is or what time it is. Anyone? Okay, that's good. <laughs> I don't feel alone now. So we'll talk about that as we go on. What, what do you do if you don't feel like obeying? What should you do then? But notice the importance of relationship when it comes to obedience. So Paul doesn't use the example of Jesus Christ to guilt them into obeying. He doesn't say something like, just think of how much Christ suffered for you. Just think about the whips ripping away the skin from his bones. Just think about the nails driven through his hands and the agony on the cross. And, and you're complaining about how long the sermon is? What's wrong with you? That's not what Paul does, is it? He doesn't motivate them like that. It starts with the example of love. So notice how Paul starts. He addresses them as my beloved, my beloved. Now, he doesn't do this in some sort of creepy Lord of the Rings kind of way. My precious. It's not like that. Like, don't read it like that. This is, this is a context of love, my beloved. It's, it's a fatherly way. He begins, again, in the context of love. So really, I think we need to, uh, if you've got your name tag on, you think you just need to cross your name out of that. Some of you don't. Put it on. <laughs> cross it out, and, and maybe you put... Hi, my name is Beloved. I mean, that's really how God views us, as Beloved. The church I uh, was in previously, we had lanyards for the volunteers, and one of the guys uh, flipped it over and put my name on the back of it. So if there were ever any issues or something, <laughs> flip it around. <laughs> With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? But this address of love is relatively rare uh, 
at least in Greek literature. Um, God uses it to address his people. We see it three times in the Psalms where he speaks to them as beloved. Jesus is called God's beloved son, uh, Matthew 3.17. And the New Testament writers do use it frequently to express their love for the recipients of the letters. And, and Paul uses it. He uses it several times here in Philippians. And, and so Paul appeals to them out of this context of love before calling them into action. I believe that it's super easy just to skip right over this statement of love right here. Yes, Paul loves the Philippians, but why does he love them? He, he loves them because God loves him and because God loves the Philippians. You know, and we can tell a lot about people by their love or lack of love for others. It's common for leaders in, in this world anyway to give commands that are actually not loving to the people under their command. They're more motivated by what's best for them instead of what's best for the people underneath their care. But that's not the way God works. God, who is love, 1 John 4, 8, tells us that the greatest command is to love him and to love each other, Luke 10, 27. And so God's love for us leads to God's commandments for us to love. In other words, from the relationship of love flows the command to love. Now, when we encounter real love, it changes us. We respond freely, joyfully, and willingly. Now, you may be wondering, what do I mean by this, that when we encounter real love, it changes us? So, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, in time past, uh, I worked for two different landscapers, and one person, it seemed like the hotter it got, the more the expectations rose. It was like as the temperature went up, the more he thought could be done was put on us. So it's like, oh, oh, only 95 out? Um, you know, heat index of 105, uh, you know, you're surrounded by asphalt parking lots and you're trimming shrubs all day and you got the heat of the exhaust from the trimmers coming on you. What's your problem, slacker? Why are you quitting at six o'clock? You got like three more hours of daylight left, right? So from that kind of a relationship, which was not motivated by love, how much incentive do you think I had to do extra? I mean, he, he would do things like, now, if you don't get your work done, uh, you all be working Thanksgiving Day. Really? Like that's going to motivate us? <laughs> that's the wrong way, isn't it? And you probably could relate to that. Not a lot of motivation from there. But, but in contrast, I also worked for a man who, who there was a loving relationship and um, he, he actually cared. And so it, he didn't have to ask for overtime. He didn't have to, have to ask for extra effort. There was, there was a freely, uh, there was this, this freeness to the, to the work. Why? It came out of this context of love. So it's incredible the way that people change when they, are, when they know they are loved. Do you remember that story in the New Testament where that Pharisee, Simon, invites Jesus over to his home? And in off the street wanders this woman into his house. Remember that? And, and she's crying and... and uh, anointing him with oil, and she's using her hair to wash his feet. She does that because she is loved by Jesus. Jesus doesn't ridicule her or shame her for doing that. Why are you here? I don't want you touching me. Get out of here. No, he loves her. And that woman leaves changed. So true love changes us. Real love changes us. So as we will see in this passage, Jesus isn't afraid to call you to obey. But it starts from a foundation of love. 
God's relationship to us is never started or initiated by our obedience. It begins by his love. After God initiates the relationship by his love, we respond back in love by obeying him. Obedience demonstrates our love for God. So as beloved children whom God loves, obey him freely, joyfully, willingly. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Because his love for you frees you from your selfishness and self-centeredness. It enables you to love him well and to love others well. I wonder if there's anyone here today who needs to hear the message that God truly loves you. Really, he does. Maybe you've been having some difficulty in obeying Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, it seems like I'm just going through the motions. Do I really need to keep obeying when I don't feel like it? Would it be better just to wait until I feel like it to obey? Or, or perhaps you're here today motivated by guilt. You're obeying because you feel guilty if you don't. Well, I want to point you to the freeing love of Jesus Christ. Yes, you should obey even if you don't feel like it. But it's the love of Jesus Christ for you that can free you from that. So the question is, that I'd really like you to ponder and consider today, how does God's love of you change things? How would that change things going forward if you knew that you were really, really loved by God? Now, Paul continues to affirm his love for the Philippians by pointing out their obedience in the past, as you have always obeyed. So previously, Paul has told them of Christ's obedience from his birth all the way through his death and exaltation. Now he's appealing for the Philippians to obey in the same manner from their initial salvation all the way until the Lord calls them home. Now Paul makes no secret of the fact that obedience is necessary. Obedience is not what saves us, but obedience is an evidence of salvation. Even Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Many people today believe that obedience is a lack of freedom. It takes away our freedom, but that's not the truth. Obedience is freedom. It's freedom from evil and being free to live to serve Christ and others. Now, Paul wants them to obey no matter whether or not he is there, whether I'm with you or whether he is gone, absent, in today's, today's uh, vernacular, we would say, when the cat's away, the mice play. We can slack off when the boss isn't there. But that's not the way that Paul wants the Philippians to respond. He wants them to obey, not because uh, he is watching them, but because God is watching them. And this is a good reminder for our obedience. We want to obey, not because another person is watching, but because God is watching us. So Paul's call to the Philippians, his command to the Philippians is flowing from the context of love. It challenges them not to be content with past glories. They can't rest on their laurels, so to speak. They must continue to demonstrate their faith through obedience. So obeying in the past does not mean uh, for them or for us that they can take their foot off the gas and just coast in the duration of their spiritual life we are challenged in the same manner. So maybe you've been faithful in serving and obeying the Lord in the past, 
great, but you can't rest there and lean upon those past acts of obedience to carry, carry you through the present and into the future. Each day is another, another opportunity, another day in which to demonstrate our love for Jesus through obedience. So question, are you resting on your past successes and victories in a way that may hinder your current obedience? And you could have also, of course, ask, answer that, ask that same question in the negative. Are you letting past failures, past mistakes, hinder your current obedience? So the Philippians, as well as us, must pursue obedience. That leads us to our second point here. Christ's obedience requires that we live obediently out of reverence for God. Christ's obedience requires that we live, that we obey or live obediently out of reverence for God. So see what Paul says there in verse 12. He says, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul calls the Philippians to work out their salvation. He describes the attitude in which that's to happen with fear and trembling. This verb for work is in the present tense, meaning it describes an a continuous and ongoing state. Continue to work out your salvation is another way to put it. Now, working out your salvation is not like one of those commercials you see on TV uh, of the people sitting on a beach ball or drinking this special potion, and then they come away with the beach body. I wish it worked like that, don't you? No, it takes effort. We call this a holy sweat. But this sentence is often misunderstood, and it's one of the more challenging ones in Scripture. What does it mean that we work out our salvation? You may, you may be here today thinking, well, I thought that salvation was a gift, not something we earned. Has Paul gone off his rocker? Is he teaching salvation by works here? Now, some have taken this verse to mean that, probably more unintentionally than intentionally, and they will emphasize human works and obedience at the expense of God's works. We call this legalism. And I put that, a definition for that in your notes there. Legalism is adding anything to the finished work of Christ and trusting in anything other than or in addition to Christ and His finished work for one standing before God. Now, personally, while I do acknowledge that legalism is a struggle, I don't think it's the greatest problem that church is, at least in uh, Western Christianity face. I think the greater problem is that people seem to have an aversion to holiness and to obedience. And the other way that verse 12 is misunderstood is by this reaction against legalism. So people hear verse 12, they hear the call to work, and they respond in an unhelpful way. So one way that we see that, uh, not made popular, I wouldn't say that, but, but certainly advocated by someone influential, Billy Graham's grandson, uh, communicates this misguided truth, or this misguided understanding, it's not truth. Uh, but in his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, he says this about verses 12 and 13. We've got work to do, but what exactly is it? Get better, try harder, pray more, get more involved in church, read the Bible longer, what precisely is Paul exhorting us to do? He answers it with, God works His work in you, which is the work already accomplished by Christ. 
Our hard work, therefore, means coming to a greater understanding of His work. So the other extreme would be we just come to a greater understanding of Christ's work, and we really don't have to work ourselves. So I think that this push in American evangelical Christianity against legalism results in an equal error called antinomialism. That's a hard word to pronounce. I wanted to substitute it with another word, but then you end up taking 20 words to try to substitute it. So rather than just do that, I just put the word there and gave a definition so that when you hear that word going forward, you'll know, oh yeah, I know what that is now. So antinomialism, it's from the Latin against the law, is the tendency to diminish or underemphasize the place of precepts, commandments, and ordinances in one's Christian journey of faith in the intention of affirming that salvation is by grace. So there can be a practical antinomialism in, that, that encourages a spiritually complacent attitude toward fighting sin in our lives. Uh, it can result in just letting go and letting God. But the Bible gives warning after warning and admonition after admonition uh, that we would put sin to death by the Spirit. So those who would diminish or explain away these warnings put themselves and their hearers in great danger. So both legalism and antinomialism are dangerous. And the beauty of Sinclair Ferguson is he's helpfully explained that we do not cure the error of legalism by sprinkling in a little antinomialism, and we do not cure the error of antinomialism by sprinkling in a little legalism, no matter how much easier and corrective it may seem. So to say that Jesus did it all so you don't have to do anything, whether intentional or not, is absolutely unbiblical. Jesus does not repent and believe the gospel for us, but God grants repentance and faith. Jesus does not live the Christian life for us, though he does supply all the grace that we need for the Christian life. So we want to understand verses 12 and 13 rightly. We want to have the correct understanding of our role and God's role in this process of holiness in the Christian life. So in order to do this, we want to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. So let's talk about justification first. When we think of God declaring us righteous, think of a legal verdict, that's what we're talking about when we talk about justification. It's a word you'll find in the Bible itself, justification. And I want to be crystal clear so there's no misunderstandings that one of the most important themes in Paul's theology is that human effort cannot cooperate with God's grace to yield a right standing before God on the final day. I want to be crystal clear about that. Our efforts do not and cannot cooperate with God to yield a right standing before God on judgment day. Even Abraham considered the most righteous Jew, was not good enough, and was considered ungodly when it came to a right standing before God. So if Abraham, the most, most righteous Jew, did not and could not be good enough to earn a right standing before God, then how could anyone else think that they could? So when it comes to our standing before God, no one here in this room or in any church or anywhere at any point in time could ever earn their salvation. 
Salvation is a free gift from God, which we receive by faith. So let's practice. I'd like you to hold up your finger, uh, fingers to show how much we contribute to getting a right standing before God. No longer uh, guilty, but not guilty. So show up, make a show with your hands of what we contribute. Good. Absolutely nothing. That is completely right. Good. But that's not, uh, and so that's vital, but that's not the, all there is to say about salvation. Salvation also includes our sanctification. And sanctification is the work of God by which he makes people holy. So I've given you a chart on your handout that shows the differences between justification and sanctification. Now, both justification and sanctification are necessary in our salvation, for each one addresses a critical problem of the sinner. And a man by the name of John James in the early 1800s used this analogy. He said, think of a man in prison under the sentence of death that at the same time is dangerously ill of a disease. If the monarch pardons him, that's not enough for his safety and happiness, for he will soon die of his disease unless he's cured. But on the other hand, if a physician heals his disease and he's not released from jail, then what good does that do him? For he will remain in jail the rest of his life. You see, he needs both the release from jail and the curing of his disease. He needs to be both pardoned and cured. Then he will be completely saved. And the same is true with us. We need the justification of God, the declaration that we're not guilty, but we also need sanctification, God changing us and growing us into Christ's likeness. So as we think about this passage, we can fall into several errors that will lead us off track. One error is to minimize salvation. If we think of salvation as nothing more than God declaring us righteous, if we think of it nothing more than justification so that we don't have to go to hell, we, we make a mistake. Our salvation is more than our justification. It includes sanctification. And sanctification and justification are not identical. In this context in Philippians, Paul is not talking about our justification. He is talking about our sanctification. Secondly, we can go wrong if we fail to understand our role in salvation. So as we've said, it's what percentage of God's role in our justification? 100. We contribute nothing, right? 100. But what about our sanctification? What role do we play in that? So we can go off track uh, in one of two ways right here. Um, one answer would be to say nothing. We just let go and let God. That's not right. But, but the other uh, error would be to say something like, uh, answer, to answer it in terms of a percentage. Even if it's we contribute or God contributes 99% and, and we just come up with 1%. That's not, how the way, that's not the way it works either. I think the, the finest summary of this passage comes from a theologian named John Murray. And he says this, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor is our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, 
so that the conjunction or the coordination of both produce the required result. God works, and so we work. Get this now. But the relationship is this. Because God works, we work. All are working out of our salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have not only, we have not, we have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently we, the more persistently active we are in our working, the more persuaded we can be of God's working in us. So to summarize it, we could say this, why do we work or how do we work? Because God is working in us. But at the end of the day, that gives us hope, right? Because as we see God working in us, what does it do? It reminds us that as we see ourselves working, what does it do? It gives us hope that God is working in us. Now, a third way to miss the point of, of, of this passage and to go off track is, is really to miss the point of the verse. If you look at your text right there, right there in verse 12, notice what Paul says. He says, work out your salvation. Just circle that word out in your Bible. He doesn't say work for your salvation. So maybe we need to remind ourselves, stop crossing out out and writing in for. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying work out your salvation. Working out your salvation is another way of describing what it means to live as a worthy heavenly citizen. And next week, we're going to unpack the specifics of this. We're going to talk about grumbling and complaining. You ready for that? <laughs> I'm sure we'll all get lots of practice this week, won't we? But we'll wait for that for next week. Now, notice the uh, attitude. So, so again, is it starting to make sense in, 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 in the way that this works? what it means to work out our salvation, not in our justification, not in our standing before God, that's all his work, but in our sanctification, which we are being changed into the image of Christ. That's where, uh, even though I don't like the term, it, it sort of, it's the best we can come up with, we cooperate with God. And as Paul is going to explain in a little bit, because God is working in us, we then work. Now, notice the attitude or the manner in which we work. Paul says, with fear and trembling. So, Paul is not writing to them to uh, instill this terror in them, uh, this fear of God in which they don't want to come to God. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's motivating them by the right kind of godly fear. You think of a child and a parent Children have a, a, a fear of their parents, but, but it's a fear that brings them to the, to the parent, not a fear that drives them away. And it's the same way with God. You've maybe heard, uh, maybe you refer to somebody or you know somebody and, and you would describe them like a big teddy bear. They might have this gruff exterior and they're kind of real stern up front, but you're like, oh, there's a big teddy bear. You know, you get past that that hard outside and they're nice and soft inside and squishy and you can mold them how you want. But, but God is not like a big teddy bear. We don't want to make the mistake of treating him like that. We treat him with reverence, with respect. So approach him with reverence, but don't not approach him. Come to him. So Paul wants the Philippians to, yes, respectfully view God, but also to come to them. 
So Paul has said, we do play a role in our sanctification, but some people at this point could start drawing the wrong conclusions. As they've been hearing about our role, our work, they, they, they might start to think, well, maybe it works like I come halfway and God comes halfway and like that country song, we meet in the middle. That's not how it works either. So that's where we draw our third point. So Christ's obedience reminds us of God's power and purposes. His obedience reminds us of God's power and purposes. So Paul says there, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So remember, as a human, Jesus obeyed by God's power. He did not obey in some way that was impossible for us to relate to. Paul does not want the Philippians now drifting off into the other error, error where it's only up to us and only up to our efforts to obey. And that's why he reminds them, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So from start to finish, salvation is God's work. As we've said, there's a sense in which we cooperate in sanctification, but even there, all of our efforts are due to God's grace. 2 Peter 1.3 reminds us that it's God's divine power who has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So without God's divine power, we wouldn't have the energy to obey. We wouldn't be able to respond in the way that God calls us to. Our sanctification is both a fight and an effort and a work of God. It's God's grace that sanctifies us. So again, we need this understanding to avoid falling into the ditches. Every good thought that you and I have, every good desire, every good intention, every good effort, all of those things have been empowered by God's sanctifying grace. So it's not like God starts the process in our spiritual life and then sort of leaves it up to us to complete. In cooking, you know, you kind of do it that way, right? You, you mix up all the ingredients and you throw it in a pan and you put it in the oven, you hit the temperature, and then when you take it out, you expect this beautiful dish of brownies or whatever it is to, to be there. Thankfully, that's not the way that God does it. He doesn't just start the process of salvation and then leave it up to us to kind of cook everything together. Uh, it, would, it would turn out like I would make it turn out if I was making brownies, not very well. So we know that uh, it's God's grace that drives everything. It's God's grace. That's the fuel that empowers us. You can jump in your car. You can hit all the buttons. You can turn the steering wheel. You can try to drive all you want, but without gas, you aren't going anywhere. And, and at the same time, we can try to do all the right things. We can try to read our Bibles. We can try to go to church, to love people, to serve others. But apart from God's sanctifying grace, we aren't going to have success at that. Now, the original language here brings out a little more clearly what Paul is getting at. God is not simply working in us, but God is the one who works the working. I hope that this brings you cries of joy and delight. I hope that your heart jumps for gladness at the fact that God is working your work. Now, the difference between legalism and spirit-powered effort is this. Legalism seeks to gain and to keep God's favor by doing things. But spirit-fueled effort that we see in this passage happens because God is working in us. Does it take effort on our part? 
Absolutely. But where does this effort come from? Does it come from us? No, from God's power. The gospel does cry, done, but this leads to a different kind of doing, not a kind of doing that seeks to earn God's favor or adds anything to Christ's finished work. Christ's work is completed, but it's a doing that comes from God's resurrection power and aims towards seeing God's purposes fulfilled in you. So Paul is speaking with confidence toward the Philippians. He wants them to know that he has this confidence that one day they will be presented as pure and spotless before the Father. How can he have this confidence? Because God is working in them. The same God who is working in them and in you is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the God who is sovereign over all things. The same God who raised and super exalted Jesus above all things is the God who raises dead people to life again. The same God who gives Paul power to have joy in his imprisonment and in his circumstances is the same God who enables you to stand up against opposition and against the trials and challenges that you face. Now, as far as animals, one of my favorite, kind, one of my favorite ones is the Energizer Bunny. And uh, I love the Energizer Bunny. Like That little guy is going all over the place, right? He never stops. Uh, just as a side note, this may not be shocking to some of you, but he was arrested last week on four counts of battery. Uh, we hope jail time will not be a negative experience for him. But getting back to this, our God is an energizer God. He is the God who energizes, right? He is the God who supplies all of this resurrection power for us. It's the power that fuels our obedience. So it should be clear by now that Paul is not talking about salvation by works. But God's justification of Paul did not result in Paul slacking off when it came to human effort. In other words, the, the legalistic Paul who was saved does not become the let go and let God Paul. Paul says that he worked harder than anybody else, 1 Corinthians 15.10. So something changed about Paul's effort. The effort did not change. Paul was no slacker. You cannot look at Scripture and say that, that he just does nothing. But what exactly changed about Paul's effort? Well, what changed was Paul became freed from self-righteousness and the attempts to earn a right standing before God on his own. Rather, his efforts became spirit-fueled. Now it was Christ's power at work within him as opposed to his own. Do you still feel a tension today between God's work and our work? That's good. I hope you do. Why are you working hard? Is it to earn a right standing before God? Oh, now that's not good. No, because God is working in you. What do you think happens when God works in you? You work. And so what is the end result of this? That God is glorified. This verse ends with that reminder that God is working and willing in you for his good pleasure. What is God's good pleasure in you? Your eternal salvation. So this passage brings us glorious news. God is at work within you. He completes the salvation that he started. And you and I are included in the process. We know that God is working in us as we work or when we work. And we can glorify God because he is the cause of all the good that we do. 
So where do we go from here? What do we do with this? What is God calling us to obey from verses 12 and 13? Well, here are maybe several ways that we can apply this. Perhaps today you need those reminders not to fall into the wrong ditch. You need those reminders of what it looks like when it comes to God's role and your salvation and our role. Maybe some of you have been uh, putting too much emphasis on your efforts and your work. Maybe others of you have been doing the opposite. Maybe it's been a let go and let God mentality. Maybe you've been waiting for a big zap. So these verses are a helpful correction to that, reminding us that we have a role to play, but it's ultimately because of God's role. Maybe you're here today feeling constantly guilty for not doing enough, for, for not being good enough for God, always feeling like this cosmic failure. Maybe you need that reminder. Maybe what God wants you to know today is that God is working the work. Maybe God wants you to know that it's His power that is fueling your work. Maybe you're here today, though, concerned about what seems to be too much talk about obedience and not enough talk on God's work. Perhaps what God wants you to see is that obedience is not a bad thing. Obedience is a joyful thing. We don't want to run from His commandments. We want to embrace them lovingly and willfully. So I believe the what is God calling me to do today from this passage can be as simple as this, to work hard as Paul did and as diligently as he expected the Philippians to, but at the end of the day, humbly recognizing that any success that we have comes from God himself. I think it could be as simple as that. Work hard, recognize that any success you have is coming from God's power and give him credit for that. Are you always going to feel like obeying God? Nope, nope. Some days it's just gonna feel like you have your nose to the grindstone, but still work hard. At the end of the day, none of us can take credit for it. We all are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. But I am thankful for the God of all grace, and I have the confidence that he will supply all of the grace you need and your efforts to, as, as his work is completed in you. And so let's go to the Lord now for prayer for that end, that God will give us this grace and that we will work hard. So our dear Heavenly Father, we have sought to navigate one of the more difficult texts in Philippians. As we think about our role in this process and your role, your work in this process, And Lord, we we are so glad that you put both of those truths in mind. We are thankful for the command to work. We know that obedience is a good thing. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here who is just struggling to obey or or wants to view obedience with uh, perhaps fear or concern, God, that they will see the beauty in that, that it is good to obey. And they will be able to do that joyfully and willingly, not reluctantly. And at the same time, Heavenly Father, I pray today for the people who perhaps are stuck, not not feeling like they have the strength to change or feeling the the constant need to be re-justified in their minds. I pray that they will be freed by that, remembering what you have done and how all your work fuels our work. So may 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 we go forth, Lord, by your power, working hard, not for our justification, Lord, but that your glorious purposes in our lives can be fulfilled. Thank you again. In your name we pray. Amen.